Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob, the D&D wannabe, coming in before the show to share some great news. New news! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. I'd also like to point out that given the nature of this episode, it was convenient for us to record during the day instead of after dark, which is our normal habit. You may hear some small-town noises and traffic from my side of the audio. I tried to edit it as best as I could, but uh, some of it had to be left in. I hope that doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this otherwise excellent episode. Okay, on with the show. I believe in role-playing games. Role-playing games made me who I am. I run D&D for my friends. I try to give them freedom, but teach them to never let the game come between them. They take the game and share it with their friends. Some use my game setting, my characters, my stories without asking me. I don't protest. But now this thing, this game that I love, has driven a wedge between them. They wield their characters like weapons against one another and try to make the story all about them. Even the dungeon masters use their non-player characters to control the story, leaving nothing for their players. I send them articles, show them the books, even make YouTube videos to try and teach them a better way, but they don't listen. I say to my brother, for instruction, we must go to Don Franklin. Why did you send them elsewhere? Why didn't you come to me first? What do you want from me? Uh, Tell me anything, but just do what I beg you to do. This I cannot do. I'll give you anything you ask. We've known each other your entire life, but this is the first time you've come to me for counsel, for help. Well, you you live kind of far away. I can remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee or for an old-fashioned. But let's be Franklin's here. You never wanted my help. And, uh... You were afraid of what I'd say. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. You found comfort in a new school of role-playing. You enjoy your streamlined rules, your easy character sheets, your simple scenarios. You didn't need a teacher like me. But, uh... Now you come to me and you say, Don Franklin, teach me to run my games better. But you aren't ready to listen. You don't even think to call me Godfather. What have I done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? Had you come to me as family, I would have given you what you need this very day. And if by chance a DM like you should have friends who need to be taught a lesson, I would teach them that lesson. And then they would be better dungeon masters too. Teach us? Godfather? Good. Good. I will teach you. 
Someday and that day may never come, I'll ask you to run a game for me. Until then, I'll come on your podcast and talk to your listeners about better ways to run their NPCs. Grazie, Godfather. Welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration. It's me, the D&D wannabe, Rob, back with you again to talk about some more Dungeons & Dragons. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode, because I'm missing half of the duo. Steven is not here with me this week, which in and of itself, I think, is a treat. But on top of that treat, we have another in that we are doing our first guest episode of the podcast. Today, I am joined by my uncle, the Godfather. Hello! Hello there, nephew. Happy to be here. And I do not endorse your sentiment that it is a good thing that Stephen is not here. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have to give each other a hard time, because if we don't, we can't guarantee that anyone else will. I understand. We have been talking about having you on the podcast for a while now, and I'm I'm personally very happy that we're finally making it happen. Because we gave you the title of Godfather, because whether you realize it or not, you were kind of our gateway into D&D. Even just like us visiting your house for the holidays, going down to your basement and pawing through your monster manuals and seeing weird creatures and weird art and these big old books and... That was kind of my gateway to the hobby 10 years before I actually picked up any dice. I'm sure your parents are thrilled with me for that, <laughs> and um, I apologize to them because I'm sure they're listening. But yeah, I remember you guys going through the books and asking me questions and seeing giant miniatures on the shelves and boxes of dice, and uh, yeah, it's always always fun to introduce somebody to the hobby. You know, this shared interest, we have... A handful of uncles, but uh, you were the cool uncle growing up. And once we began sharing this hobby, like a little bit after I actually got into D&D and we started talking to you about it, our relationship, yours and mine, got a lot better. We we talk more than pretty much any other member of the family because no other member of the family is into this stuff with me, besides Steve. Yeah, that's right. I've tried to get my own family into it, but they've never shown as much interest as you have. And obviously, we've played a lot of games together. You've run some for me. I've been running one for you for a long time. Yeah, the game that you were running for me, we've been playing for years together now. And you're actually playing with some of the same people that you played with in high school, right? Not that far back. I actually, I picked up the, uh, the hobby in 1986, I believe. Um, 87, someone who's listening will probably correct me, but right about the time that Dungeons and Dragons second edition, sometimes called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D, it's got a lot of different names. The, the first attempt by TSR, who owned the license to Dungeons and Dragons at the time, to try to codify and 
put the rules into something that you could actually make sense of, because obviously first edition is just this stream of consciousness from Gary Gygax's brain onto a piece of paper where you could never find a rule if you needed it. (laughs) I picked up the game then and immediately wanted to run it. And I've heard you talk about that sort of feeling as well. The GMs or DMs, depending on which you prefer, among us out there tend to pop up pretty early when you are introduced to the game. Although I had a lot of really talented guys running for me and playing the game with me, I immediately wanted to be the boss. <laughs> so, I mean, we've played every, that group that you're talking about, there's eight or so of us that have played every edition of D&D together, along with quite a few other games we could talk about if you ever wanted to. But D&D has always been the Jupiter that the other moons sort of orbit around. Because it is the granddaddy game. Well, for running a game of Dungeons & Dragons or whatever RPG caught your fancy at the time for the same group of people for so long, and they kept coming back, you must have been doing something right. If you have that devoted of an audience, even with this podcast, one day maybe we'll have that devoted of an audience who keep coming back for so long. But I figure that it takes a certain amount of talent, it takes a certain amount of skill to not only maintain your own interest with a hobby for so long, but maintain the interest of others. That's definitely a challenge. We could probably have a whole discussion about how difficult it is to be consistent and how difficult it is to keep a game going. Probably when I was younger, as a great many DMs do, had a reputation for starting games and never finishing them. A few of the guys pointed out to me that it was difficult to keep signing up for my games when I would run 12 times and then get interested in something else. I don't want to run Planescape anymore. I want to run Dark Sun. Hey, there's a new version of D&D coming out. Let's kill your 12th level characters off real quick and start (laughs) over at first level. That's a common thing. Anybody who's listening to this who's a DM has done that. When your game starts to feel like work, you want to go to something new and shiny And the fact that these guys continue to come back, I don't know if it's a testament to how good I am at running a game. Probably more to the fact that my enthusiasm tends to talk people into things that they might otherwise (laughs) think better of. But the most recent game that we're running and that we're playing has been going on since 2017. Yeah. And we've played at least 30 times a year since then because I'm meticulous about such things. I keep a log of all of our games, and we've been going for a while with the same group, like you said, that you are now a part of, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> uh, and in, we'll give some credit where credit is due. They are, they are devoted and loyal friends, and we will credit them for their devotion to your games and willingness to stick with you and sometimes with me through our shenanigans and dalliances. I have a lot of respect for the people out there who are playing pickup games with strangers, meeting people out on forums, going out to looking for group, looking for game things at Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or wherever it is that you hang out and have these conversations. I'm not sure how comfortable I would be running for a group of strangers. Um, I've been doing this for, what, 30 years now? gosh, longer than that. And for this same group of guys, and if I had to tomorrow sign up and run for a different group, it would be difficult for me. So I am equally attached to them as they are to me, I think. Running D&D and other tabletop RPGs for so long, there's got to be a reason that you 
have continued for this long. Like, this is more than a hobby. This is more than a happy little pastime for you. What has kept drawing you back? What has kept you plugged in to tabletop RPGs for decades? This is the most fun, creative outlet there is, period. Mm. Unless you are an exceptional artist of some kind. I get it. If you can sculpt, if you can paint, if you can write, good for you. I think that's great. We need that art in our (laughs) lives. Most of us cannot do that. But all of us can imagine ourselves in a situation that is fantastical and enjoy deciding what we would do in that situation. It's wonderful. I mean, if you enjoy playing Monopoly or your Xbox or whatever, I get it. But there's an extra level of commitment and consequences that comes from playing role-playing games. The fun for me... I do enjoy playing, although I almost never get to. I much prefer running the game because I get to set up those situations and see others enjoy those moments where they're challenged or they're entertained or they're surprised. And how often do you get that in real life? I mean, there's just there's nothing that can compare to playing a role-playing game. I'm in complete agreement, as should probably not surprise you, especially coming from the perspective of the dungeon master or the referee or the storyteller or the game master, whatever you want to call yourself in your particular system. Whatever context I'm in, I like to be responsible for other people's fun. I like to entertain others, and I assign a undue amount of value to myself when I do that well. And (laughs) that is where a lot of my self-validation comes from. But I can't surprise or delight or encourage emotional experiences in others, in my friends, outside of role-playing games in socially appropriate ways. (laughs) I can do things to their characters that I would never do to them. Yeah, you cannot set traps for your friends. Yeah. You cannot betray your friends and expect to get away with it outside of a role-playing game. But there's such an emotional journey to be had that these games can give you that I could just never get away with. And it does let me get out my altruism. It does let me get out my sadism from time to time in ways that are relatively repercussion-free. Sometimes my players won't talk to me for a week, but that's about as bad as it gets. I believe that if you've never played one of these games, it's hard for me to remember back to a time when I hadn't played one of these games. Until you've played the game, I don't think you have a good idea of what it's all about. After you've played the game, in my experience, almost everyone gets it. And assuming their life and their schedule and their personality are such that they can accommodate a game, they almost always want to. Well, to get down to business a little bit, I specifically wanted you to come in and talk about a particular topic Several episodes ago at this point, Stephen and I discussed kind of a hot-button issue for me, which is DMPCs, which is Dungeon Master player characters. When the Dungeon Master tries to join in the adventuring fun and can potentially and probably will damage the fun of the players by consequence, by stepping on their fun, their role in the game a little bit. And this is something that, in my opinion, I have never struggled with. And this is due somewhat, I think, 
to experiencing your games and seeing how you run NPCs. And I coined the term in the last episode, adventuring NPCs, which are capable, active, questing, non-player characters that do not cross the line into a Dungeon Master player character, and we detailed some of the things that can prevent an adventuring NPC from crossing that line into something that they shouldn't be. And your campaigns are almost filled to the brim with NPCs who add to our fun rather than take away from it that sometimes you control, sometimes you don't. And I thought that perhaps our listenership could glean something from your years of experience in the matter. Well, first I'll say that mistakes with NPCs are going to happen. I think it's easy to sit here with 30 plus years of experience and act like I always knew how to handle this, but I am pretty confident that I handle it well now. In the early days, it was very common for the DM to create an NPC to fill a gap, almost always healing, in the party. Mm -hmm. So, Everybody wants to play a fighter and a wizard and a rogue because they want to do all kinds of damage. But the game, especially the older versions of the game, are designed in such a way that if you don't have healing, you will fail. So it was really common for the GM to create a cleric and play it and not really care so much about that. It was it was almost just a heal bot following you guys around. Right. We didn't apply a personality to it. Nobody cared about it. Nobody adorned it with magic items. We're even calling it it. (laughs) Exactly. It. I mean, again, we would give it a name, but it didn't matter. It was there to forward the actual PC's ability to do damage. It's a hit point vending machine. Exactly. Just press the cleric button and make a cure wounds pop out. That's right. And every so often when I don't need this plus one chainmail anymore because I've got plus five chainmail, throw it on it, the cleric. (laughs) That, I think, quickly led to what you would think is a logical next step, which is, well, if I'm going to run this NPC to heal you guys, I'm going to have some fun with it. So I'm going to start caring what its name is, and I'm going to start caring what deity it follows, and I'm going to care about whether it gets a cut of the loot when we kill this dragon, and so on. And then all of a sudden, you've got a DM who's creeping into being a player. You can marry that up to the never-ending problem that all of us DMs share and commiserate about constantly at secret DM parties, which I'm sure you've been invited to by now. Yeah. Rule number one of secret DM parties. We do not talk about secret DM parties on podcasts. Darn it. (laughs) Failed already. But that rule being that we all wish we could play. Most of us wish we could play our own game because (laughs) we think no one can run as well as we can. That's a necessary hubris for DMs to continue doing what they're doing, I think is to think that we're the best at it. Or at the very least, we would like to run the kind of game that we would like to play. We do the things that we find interesting, and that attracts us to our own style, intrinsically. That's exactly right. So you're sitting around designing your game, thinking how awesome your game is. You're thinking about the fact that you have to play an NPC to keep these guys alive, and the next logical conclusion is, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play my game. And all of a sudden, you're creating a character 
who is standing out in combat, who is participating in conversations with NPCs, who is gathering information, who is sneaking ahead and scouting. All I can tell you is every single one of those things is a terrible decision and you should not be doing it. Right. But we all have done it. I I don't personally know a DM that I've ever played for who hasn't done it. Well, I guess I have to take that back. I don't know that you've ever done it. But of the old crew, they've all done it. Actually, I feel very called out because the very first game that I ran, I had a heel bot with the party. And they had a personality. They had a name. I cared what deity they followed. They had a backstory and they had goals. But... I took steps to make them less interesting and less pivotal to the story than my actual players and made them someone that you couldn't possibly be envious of, who couldn't stand the spotlight and who often hid literally from shining moments in the story. So yes, I I very much fit your description of the first Dungeon Master but I came to D&D in a campaign where DMPCs were pretty prevalent, and I approached the hobby from day one as a dungeon master trying to avoid this trope. I agree that there are groups who will never get away from it, probably plenty of groups who think that it's just the way you play the game, and I guess I could probably forgive a group that had a small number of players trying to create a balance of abilities and powers by introducing a DMPC. To me, there's still better ways to deal with that. The first one that comes to mind in that situation, if you've only got two players, you're better off letting them play two PCs than you introducing one PC. Mm. Again, I can say this till I'm blue in the face. You're not going to appreciate why this is important until you've been the PC in a game where the DM loves his PC. Mm. That's when you're like, why am I even here? I'm watching this guy, as we say, play with himself. (laughs) It's like you create Batman and Wonder Woman, and you decide to start the Justice League, and then Superman shows up, and you wonder why you don't just go on permanent vacation. That's right. I could tell you stories. I'm not sure that that's what this is about, <laughs> but I could tell you stories. of uh, I can Two terrible DMPCs come to mind. We talk occasionally about having bonus content on a Patreon or between the episodes, episodes that I don't have to edit as harshly. That would I would at least like to hear it if no one else would. Someday, the story of Mythweird, the intelligent <laughs> sword, <laughs> will be told as a Patreon bonus content podcast. Don't give Steve ideas for his next Hexblade Pact, please. <laughs> so, we, we agree that this is a problem. I am delighted that we agree this is a problem because it is probably my largest, maybe second largest pet peeve associated with this game that we love. But that's not why I had you on here to agree with me. I wanted you on here to perhaps suggest alternative methods to introduce NPCs into the game who add to the realism of the world by saying that, yes, there are other capable people out there. There are other classed individuals. There are people who care about the things that you care about, who can cooperate or hinder your goals. And that is something that, from my experience, you do very well, and that I think that no one will explain or do justice to this idea better than you. Wow, no pressure. 
No pressure. So I think it might be easy to take away from what we've talked about so far, the idea that NPCs shouldn't be the focus of your campaign. Absolutely, they shouldn't. The PCs are the focus. But that doesn't mean that NPCs aren't incredibly important. They are the method by which a DM will get her point across about what's going on in the world, what she wants to happen next in the world, what she feels the PCs should be focused on right now. So many times in our games, we get to the point where our players feel like they don't know what to do, or we feel like they need a piece of information that they don't have. And the temptation is to put a note on a bulletin board that invites them to go visit a tower on the outskirts of town, or to have them make a knowledge roll and then literally kill the momentum of your game by giving a 15-minute expositional speech about the history of the bugbear religion in your world. (laughs) When all of that is better facilitated by introducing an NPC. No, absolutely. In the real world, the most common way for us to get information is transferring it from person to person. I never go to a bulletin board. It may be that someone has put something on the internet or someone messages me or something, but I am receiving information from other people, and it is more organic or interesting that way, and I'm more inclined to listen. We were talking about this not very long ago at all, that people kind of tune out lectures. If you're going to give a lore dump from your seat as the dungeon master, even if I'm really invested in the game, I'm probably going to miss some of it. But if my character is having a conversation with another character who has a name and a personality and something that we have in common, something that we share, I'm so much more likely to be tuned in. And I'm so much more likely to go to that person again to find something new. And it builds the world around your adventure and it builds the social network of your characters. That's exactly right. Those two points, I think, are spot on because what you accomplish by using NPCs is illustrating to your players the reality of your world. Mm. So if you want to educate your players on a problem that has arisen, the best way to do it is to bring it to them by an NPC. This is your opportunity to get creative. So I can think of several things here. If you want to kick off a new kind of story, you can use an NPC for that. If your players are off track, you can use an NPC to put them back on track. If the game is bogging down, and I know you know what I'm talking about, there's this fine line between conversation between your players about tactics or what they're going to do next or how they should equip for the next fight or whatever... And then it's spilling over this waterfall into ridiculousness. We've been talking about this for a half hour and it's going nowhere. I think one of my favorite things to do with an NPC is use them to redirect your players. And in this case, I usually have no plan whatsoever. <laughs> Wait, everyone, make a per- make a perception check. And they look at the window and I say, you realize you're being observed mm. by the same person who I made up last time was observing you. <laughs> you know, I still I don't know why this person's observing them. I don't know why they're there. I don't know what their motivations are. But suddenly you've gotten your players off of the track you didn't like onto something new. And more than likely, if you just listen to them, you'll come up with what that NPC's purpose is anyway, because they'll have wild conspiracy theories about who it is. <laughs> and you can just latch onto the one you like the best. 
See, I really like that use for NPCs in particular because I've heard of random encounters being used in that same function. And what I find is, yes, it breaks the monotony. It gives you something exciting, gives you something distracting to do. But at the end of that combat, nothing has really changed. You kill everything, and then you come back to being in the same situation where nothing has altered, and you're having the same discussions about what to do next. The introduction of a new NPC who has information or who may have goals or perhaps documentation on them or wearing the crest from that family that you heard about that one time can carry the adventure in a different direction that can't possibly leave you in that same doldrum. It's a great way, too, if you realize you're approaching the end of your session and you want to leave them on some sort of a cliffhanger because maybe it hasn't been your favorite game or things haven't gone as well as you'd like. They're sitting around their hideout that no one knows where it is, the cabin in the woods, the cave in the side of the mountain, and in staggers in an elf in the livery of some kingdom you don't recognize with an arrow on his back, and he says, I can't believe I finally found you guys, and he collapses. <laughs> and that's the end of the game for this week. We'll see you next week. And then you've got you a week to figure out. week. Yes, exactly. It's like you don't even have to know why yet. Right. You've, you've got a week to figure out who the heck that elf is. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I think correctly and wisely using non-player characters to add to your story and to tell your story as your primary brushes on the canvas of your world is kind of a separates the men from the boys, the new dungeon masters from the veterans or those who are truly talented in... Dungeons and Dragons, as far as Dungeon Masters go. But as you were saying, NPCs don't just have to be the guy in the coffee shop, or the guy selling you the magical wares, or the elf who collapses in the middle of your hideout. Some of them, perhaps many of them, are capable peers of the adventuring party. People who stand on the same level as them, or perhaps even a tier above, who are aware of the things that the party is combating and who probably have feelings one way or the other as to how those things should be handled. If, or preferably when, the party meets a non-player character who is willing to go the distance with them, at least for a time, and cooperate with them and risk their lives to achieve the party's goals, how do you handle an NPC who adventures alongside the party without going too far? This is the sort of thing that I think can kick off in one of two ways. More often than not, I have off the cuff created an NPC because the situation called for it, and the players have become more interested in them than I ever anticipated. So this is purely off the cuff. This person has a function and a name, and suddenly the players expect them to be more. So that's when you have to put on your creativity hat and be prepared to tag along with them. The first thing I do when I realize an NPC is going to be hanging out with the party is I figure out what their flaw is. Mm. They must have a flaw. Steven will be very happy. That's his most precious point of any character is what's wrong with them. I couldn't agree more. We could go off on a huge tangent about Mary Sue characters that have no flaws are the most boring thing in the world to me. But there are certainly players who want to play them. That being said, NPCs should never be flawless. 
even if your characters are first level and it's perfectly reasonable that this person they've encountered is more powerful than them, they should be hindered in some way. I can't come help you because I'm stuck here. I can't come help you because I have commitments elsewhere. I'm a giant jerk and you would not (laughs) want to hang out with me for very long. Or I'm just a giant and I don't fit in the dungeon. Exactly. (laughs) I'm not willing to go first. I'm a coward. I'm here for the money. I'm not here to risk my life. You guys are heroes. I'm not a hero. But we do have corresponding goals right now. Or they can be apparently perfectly competent to begin with. You don't have to expose that flaw right off the bat. But as the PCs get more attached to them, it becomes more important that you start to display these flaws. They can't sneak. They... (laughs) They can't keep their mouths shut. (laughs) They have no skill with any sort of martial weapon. They're a liability because of their low hit points. They're constantly going down. Something like that so that the PCs have to either question whether it's worth having this person with them or they have to commit their resources to keeping this person with them. That makes this person a burden, almost like an item or a pet, as opposed to a participating NPC that is doing things for them. That sounds, to a certain extent, like the worst level in every video game, where you are on an escort quest and taking care of someone who is just a burden. But that's not quite what we're talking about here, because even though these characters are not nearly as capable as the adventurers in terms of their motivations or skills, they're not incapable in the slightest. That's right, and I think that that tends to illustrate itself more not in those NPCs that the party simply stumbles upon, but instead those that you put in their path intentionally. Mm. In my experience, when I've put someone out there because I need the party to absorb this person for a while to get a message across, to motivate them in a particular direction— to expose a flaw in their plan, that sort of thing, then that person tends to be more capable, more thought out, and less throwaway. I can think of a situation. I had a dungeon that you guys refused to go into. This was in a game last year. I believe your character, a bard, had scouted out what was going on inside of this cave. It was an old abandoned mine where there was going to be a meeting taking place between two different factions. Mm -hmm. And you came back and reported that there were a lot of bad guys in there and they seemed very powerful And the group basically said, well, then why in heaven's name would we go in there? They'll kill us. (laughs) Screw that. That sounds like death. Mike's at it again. (laughs) That happens all the time as a DM where you set up a situation, work hard on it, expect the players to go encounter it, and they simply refuse to. It's not something you can control. Well, I suppose you could control it, but you wouldn't want to play in a game where that was controlled. Right. So the players have made a decision, I'm not going to go in there. I had to think fast over the course of the next week, and I decided one of the NPCs who was in there was unhappy with the way things were going. So he pulled his guys out, came out, found you guys, told you all the secrets of the people on the inside, told you there were half as many bad guys in there now, and that he would be willing to help you go in there and defeat what was left. That you locked on to and decided to join him. And that's when 
Otenamon, the Tiamat cleric, joined your party. I shouldn't have to tell you what the Tiamat cleric's flaw was. <laughs> right. I'm still surprised. Uh, and this is just because I was the worshiper of a non-good god earlier in that campaign. How quickly we were fine with hanging out with the Tiamat cleric, even briefly. That's the stuff you can never predict, or at least I can't with my players. Again, I play with the same guys most of the time, but you would think after 30 years they would become predictable. They absolutely don't. They will reject one person and then welcome with open arms a evil Tiamat cleric into their midst <laughs> because he has information about someone who is arguably more evil than him. Now, I remember Otenamon. That shouldn't be terribly surprising. I remember lots of things about the games that I, the few games <laughs> that I get to play in. And one of the things that made Otenamon effective as an adventuring NPC to me, as a player and as my character, is that they were pretty fleshed out. Not to the point that they were in danger of becoming a Dungeon Master player character, but the fact that in addition to the flaws that you already mentioned, Otenamon had a goal, and our adventuring party could help him achieve that goal, at least in the short term. And when we ceased to be useful, when our goals ceased to align, there was no illusion that we were going to cooperate forever, that they were going to become an extra member of our party and join us for the duration of the quest. Exactly, and I'm not sure that the players always know that up front. That's okay, but I designed him knowing that he had no intention of staying. Well, I mean, you probably could have convinced him to, but for the short term, as you said, your goals were aligned. For the long term, he has a bigger quest that will obviously conflict with your own later, which again adds a lot of nuance to the role-playing. Because that sort of mirrors real life. You know, adventuring is the profession and the passion of the player characters for the most part. And in my profession, I find myself working with people who I don't think are going to become part of my company. I don't think that we're going to hire them. I don't think that we're going to have an extended working relationship. But I need your help to accomplish this goal or meet this deadline. And we may maintain a positive or negative working relationship from that point, but cooperating and other people joining forces to meet a particular goal is just believable. It's just realistic to me. That's right. And a couple of things you said there, I'll chime in with a little more detail. Otenamon was designed with the intention of getting you guys back on track. So I had to make his goals align with you. And I had to make his goals useful for you to accomplish your goals. Necessary, in fact, for you to accomplish your goals. Now, I didn't make his presence necessary. If you guys had said, hey, thanks for the information, dude. Wait here and we'll tell you when we've killed the red wizard mage in there that you want dead so badly. He wouldn't have argued with you. He would have said, okay, great. Sounds like you can handle it. Go ahead. The other point that you made there that I want to kind of latch on to, as you said, he seemed more fleshed out than the average NPC. He absolutely was fleshed out ahead of time, but I think it's worth mentioning, I, th I would say with almost any game you're playing, especially with D&D 5e, that I don't feel any requirement to make my NPCs completely legal classes 
within the Dungeons and Dragons 5e character design framework. Right. And I also don't feel any need to make them complete. I don't need to know how good Otenamon is at climbing when I design him, <laughs> right? I don't need to know his athletics role. I don't need to know whether he's a good swimmer and jumper. I, if those things come up, I'll deal with it in the moment. The things that are going to be obvious to you guys, that's what needs to be fleshed out. So how does he look? How does he act? How does he talk? What does he care about? Is he going to lie about anything? Is he going to have information that you particularly need? What's going to happen in a fight? Is he a support guy? Does he kind of take care of himself? Does he need a lot of attention in a fight? Does he hang back? Does he move forward? That's about all I have to decide before I can run him. But to you guys, he seems like a very real person because all of the obvious bits I've already decided on. You and I have talked before about there being different types of NPCs that can interact with the party. And I don't suppose it will come as a surprise to anybody listening to the podcast that you and I talk about Dungeons & Dragons outside of this podcast. And when we were talking before, you told me that you break down NPCs into particular types or particular groups, depending on how you want them to function within the story. So what was Otenamon and what other options are there? So my philosophy is if there are NPCs present anywhere in your world, then put them there. Don't hold back, right? They should be there. That's what makes your world realistic. Otenamon was what I call a joiner. A joiner is somebody that the DM inserts in your path, Mm. right? That's, I'm on a mission to help you. I was sent by the king. I'm Luke Skywalker and I'm here to rescue you. Right. I mean, your cell door opens and there's a guy standing there. That's a joiner. You didn't go looking for him. You didn't invite him. He showed up. In my jungle campaign, I introduced, I wonder how many of your listeners know what a chewinga is. (laughs) But there's these little fey spirits that run around the jungle. And one time you guys had got yourself into particular trouble. And I introduced these chewinga into the game that helped you find your way. Again, that's a joiner. That was somebody that showed up every so often, helped you out, had a mission, had a message, had some reason that the DM wanted you to encounter them for. Hmm. One of my favorite joiners of all time is Poe. Yeah, Poe. Poe the Imp was a familiar is a strong word if you ask him but a agent of the Red Wizard Fiona who spied on your group frequently. He was invisible and he went everywhere you went, only occasionally revealing himself and almost never revealing his motives. He was a joiner. You didn't have any control over whether he was there or not. He showed up and he participated. I really enjoyed Poe. And still to this day, I'm not entirely sure what he was or what his motivations were, and he was not always around, which also added to the believability of the character and of the scenario. We didn't know if he was always going to be there or if we could truly trust him. In fact, even when he's picking me up from dying, I'm wondering why. (laughs) And that was, Poe was very fun. And you have to do that as a DM. I mean, there's two things I could say about Poe. It could be that I have no idea what his real motivations were. You probably know that's not true. Mm -hmm. When I initially introduced him in the very first time you saw him, I didn't really have a plan for him. 
But you guys enjoyed him so much that I developed a backstory for him. I developed motivations for him. And anytime he wasn't around, I knew where he was and what he was doing. Again, your commitment to your NPCs is the most important storytelling tool you have as a DM. So if you're going to make them part of the story, then know what they're doing with their lives. I knew where Poe was when he wasn't with you. The second kind of NPC that I think about, I call a bystander. I use bystanders, number one, just to make a scene more realistic and often to add an element, especially to a combat, of additional risk or consideration for the players. I'm sure you guys have talked or you will talk about the importance of terrain and distance and lighting and all of those types of things in making a combat less than generic. A two-dimensional combat is boring and if you aren't enjoying Dungeons & Dragons, I guarantee you your DM is running two-dimensional combats. Mm. Bystanders help make them three-dimensional, right? The PCs are really kicking butt. They're winning this fight. And suddenly a woman pushes her baby carriage out into the middle of the street. <laughs> and you can't use your fireballs anymore. Or shouldn't. Or at least shouldn't, yes, depending on who you are. There's a new consideration. Right. You've gone in to kill the orc slavers, but what are you going to do with the slaves? This is the don't let them hurt me, or I've got amnesia, or the elf that staggers in with the arrow in his back. All of these guys are just bystanders. They're there to make the PC's lives more complicated and more interesting. And to make your world seem real. I can't stress that enough. The very first fight we had with a couple of our characters in your campaign, because if we haven't made this clear already, this campaign's been going on for a while and we've not been playing the same characters in the same place the entire time. We've been having vignettes that sometimes take a year of different characters in different parts to tell different aspects of the story. But one of these scenarios began with a fight in a populated marketplace. It was filled with, I'm, I like the movie Flushed Away, and there's a character in there that says Millicent bystanders instead of innocent bystanders. <laughs> and it was just filled with Millicent bystanders. That's right. And now I'm going to make an NPC named Millicent bystanders. <laughs> and they were, they really changed the dynamic of the fight because we didn't have a lot of true enemies in that scenario. But, you know, we didn't want to just start a fight in the middle of the marketplace. The law was going to crack down on us if we started just randomly attacking people. We couldn't use all the spells that we liked because we would hurt people that we had nothing against and ruin the otherwise normal days of people who were just trying to go about their lives. And, yes, that was realistic. That was a great place for us to be attacked was in the middle of a marketplace, especially by people whose methods were so innocuous and subtle at times. I will point out that you made very clever use of the calm emotion spell in that situation. And that's worth pointing out that that's a great use of the calm emotion spell is I can't use a fireball here, but I'm not <laughs> really hurting all the innocent bystanders, all the millicent bystanders, <laughs> if I use calm emotions. So that's pretty handy. Uh, I thought I'd point that out. But this has got to be realistic. So these aren't just here to be obstacles, although they start out that way. The average NPCs who's in the middle of a fireball fight between powerful classed individuals are going to get out of the way. So let your NPCs get out of the way if they are capable. But the destruction of people and property and pets 
and all that sort of thing, especially when you're having urban fighting or whatever, makes the game so much more fun. And this is another time to introduce one of those sneaky DM tricks that we were talking about a minute ago. If the combat doesn't seem very interesting or if it seems a little boring, then use a bystander to peer out of a window pull back the curtain and you see a pair of eyes looking at you and making notes. <laughs> like, I don't know what that's for, but it's going to bother somebody in the group. It's going to drive them crazy. If somebody's taking pictures of you with their phone while you're fighting, that's something that's going to annoy somebody in your group and they're going to waste time trying to figure out what that's about rather than killing the bad guys. I was going to say, I can guess two of my fellow players in the campaign who would ignore everything, leave the rest of us to die, just to have the answer to who that is and what they're doing. That's right, because as a DM, that's one of the nice things about playing with the same group all the time. And again, I, there's nothing wrong with playing with new people all the time. I, I envy people who do that. But one of the things is if, if one in a hundred times I have that innocent bystander be the, you ignored him and that's the reason you failed, then I can have so much fun the other 99 times when this person is doing nothing but drawing a picture of the sunset, but my PCs have gotten completely off track. And uh, that's the goal. Because, I mean, ultimately, combats are not going to go the DM's way. So when the tension is high, throw as many wrenches as is realistic at the PCs. Don't be ridiculous, but yeah, you can have a lot of fun that way. The third kind of NPC in my personal list is what I just call a recruit. And this is the most obvious kind and probably the easiest to manage. This is when you need to hire a guide to take you somewhere or at low levels you get yourself a trained dog or you need a porter to carry all your copper out of the dungeon or whatever. Hire a pilot to take you from point A to point B. Those people are NPCs and they may turn into other kinds of NPCs. But they're still important to your story. They need to be available, but they're the easiest for you to run because they're probably fire and forget. They serve a purpose until they run out of hit points. They serve a purpose until they carry a box somewhere or whatever. But I mean, don't be afraid to make those people interesting because you never know when your characters are going to latch on to them. And again, even simply hiring a porter or a guide is an opportunity for you to introduce some nuance or some intrigue into your game. So you hire a street urchin to deliver a message, but you notice he whispers something to a beggar on the corner before he keeps going to deliver your message. Did he tell someone what your message said? Did he tip somebody off to the fact that you were in town? You can still have fun with even recruits. Yeah, giving NPCs different motivations or different quirks just to make them stand out against the gray background, the fog of your campaign that exists just outside of the character's vision at any given moment is great. Whether it be a subtle whisper, like you said, it's impossible to tell what your players are going to latch onto sometimes. I can have a very well-developed, very mysterious, very interesting person sitting in the corner of the pub, but I give the bartender a strange voice. And all of a sudden, this is their favorite pub because they want to continue to listen to this guy and make me do this voice. <laughs> and there's just no telling. Better you than me. Yeah. That is something that infamous may or may not be the right word, but that I believe you are infamous for as a dungeon master is having very large combats with 
very many people in them who are not the player characters. And when I say that, I don't want to at all imply that they are not incredibly epic. These are large-scale encounters where it is far more interesting than just having four adventurers taking on a single troll. The battle that first comes to mind when I mention that is, as you can have probably guessed, we are playing through the Tomb of Annihilation campaign, heavily edited and added to. But the battle at Malar's Throat is the one that comes to mind for me. There was a lot of undead. There were a lot of guards from Port Nianzaru. There was a priestess. There was a local smith. There was an orc deserter. There was a lot of moving parts of that combat before our player characters even showed up. How do you pull that off? Because you do. You do pull that off, but how? So I do like big, epic set-piece fights, and I like them even at low level. I think 5e in particular invites those kind of fights, because if you've ever watched a group of 15th level PCs take on the Tarrasque, they win. Yeah. That's just sort of the way 5e is designed. Unless you heavily tweak the Tarrasque, they're going to beat it. 5e, in my opinion, gets much more interesting when there's a lot more pieces on the chessboard. So if you're going to have a lot of pieces on the chessboard, there's two approaches for that. You can say, okay, I've got the party and they are surrounded by undead. And we're going to spend the next couple of hours with them killing 50 undead. And that's interesting. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, it's a little bit more interesting to put the town guardsmen out there. And the Timora Temple was out there with the priestess and some orphans. Because there's got to be orphans. (laughs) How do you know that there's stakes if there's not orphans? Exactly. Not just children. They must be orphans. (laughs) Happy for the first time in years. (laughs) There, I mean, I had animals out there. I had a horse with a name. I had a black panther stalking the edges of the jungle looking for meat because he was starving. And so once you've kind of set that scene, then you ask yourself, okay, so this combat can go, as I said, one of two ways. It's going to be the players go and then I go with all these monsters for a while or... The players can go, and then some monsters go, and then maybe some NPCs go, and I'll hand those NPCs over to my player characters so they have more to do in this giant fight. Disclaimer, some of your players may not want to do this, and if they don't want to, for goodness sake, don't force them, but I would ask them to try it out. Some people, and I may be one of these people, to be honest, that doesn't like taking my own medicine It breaks the immersion in your own character a little bit to play NPCs. But if it's just temporary, if it's just for this fight, I don't think it needs to do that. You're not asking them to take on this burden long term. You're just asking them to have some fun in this fight. And the way that you hook them is by giving the NPC that you hand them some sort of motivation for that battle and not sharing it with the other PCs. So, for instance, you mentioned the orc deserter. His name was Crixus. He was not a deserter. He was convicted and given a choice of either joining the army or being executed. So he joined the army, Mm. but he saw this giant battle as an opportunity to desert. So I told the player when I gave them Crixus a little note that says the whole group will get additional experience if you can get Crixus off the map. He has to get off the map alive, and then he's escaped into the jungle, which sounds easy, 
except I gave another PC, the lieutenant of the guard, who knew that Crixus couldn't be trusted and was keeping an eye on him. And I told him, if Crixus tries to bolt, you have to stop him. And that was me, so that's why I consider Crixus a deserter. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all kinds of fun. Again, the person who got to play the Black Panther just had to drag some meat back into the jungle. I had someone playing a simple ward of the temple whose job was to hold the door and not let any of the undead get to the orphans. And he died doing that. Mm -hmm. But that was the goal, and good for him. Um, I'm not sure what I would have done if skeletons had got to the orphans. Someone would have intervened. I'm not that kind of DM. (laughs) That's great. This is one of the things that really made me want to talk with you specifically about this, is because you were the person who introduced me to the idea of player characters driving NPCs. And that served several purposes, particularly in the Maelar's Throat fight, that was just very elegant in my mind. Yes, it did, I suppose, break my immersion in playing the one character, but it made me more immersed in the world. It made me feel like this place was alive and that it was filled with people who were interesting besides my little halfling rogue. The lieutenant's goal, besides stopping Crixus, was he had a little crush on that priestess of that temple down there in Maelar's throat. And his primary objective, he let Crixus escape because his main mission was not to let his honey get hurt. And he succeeded in that regard, and he had multiple motivations. I had two goals, and I had to choose which was more important to me. That was role-playing to me. Furthermore, if we had that big of a fight with that many characters in it, and I got to take one turn as my halfling, one time an initiative, an initiative filled with 50 things, as much as I loved that game, as much as I was invested in that scene, I would have gotten bored. It would have just been too long before I got to affect the world around me again. And the opportunity to basically have a second turn in initiative as another character that I got to roleplay kept me invested. And the fact that I didn't know what was going on with the other characters, creatures and characters that I'm completely unfamiliar with, unlike the other members of the party, being piloted by other players at the table, who frankly I don't trust (laughs) half the time, made things very interesting. It kept me engaged in ways that I would not if I was just playing a single character in an encounter that size. I don't know that I've ever consciously thought about it, but you make an excellent point because as DMs, if there's anything that we find bothersome, it is a player that's not paying attention. We've gone to the trouble of designing a game. We've gone to the trouble of trying to entertain you this evening. We'd love it if you'd just participate. And obviously there's all kinds of reasons that people don't, but I think that the showman in us makes us want to be looked at. And one of the things that you get out of introducing these NPCs is attention from your players because they don't just have one point in a very long initiative order. They may have two or three points in a long initiative order, which requires them not to just look up every 10 minutes and try to assess what's going on, but to really keep up with the flow of a big battle like that. So I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's a great point that it keeps your player engaged. And that was something that made Maylar's Throat in particular stand out to me because as with my job, I've had to miss some games here and there, and I don't always have the context for what we're doing that the more regular players often do. 
there was a fight on a ship. There was a fight against a kraken in this little port in this bay area. And when I was able to rejoin the campaign, I came in in the middle of it, and I was given multiple NPCs to control, and I got those additional rounds in combat. I was able to stay engaged in the mechanics of the fight and continue doing things, acting, never having to wait very long before I got to participate again. But the characters that I had in those scenarios, I didn't know much about. I didn't know what their particular goals were. I didn't think of them as individuals, like I did in that Maylar's Throat fight, that really just drew me in and made me fascinated. I have wondered, because we've been back to Port Nianzaru since then as different characters, and I've wondered what that lieutenant is up to, and where he is, and if he got with that priestess, or she wouldn't give him the time of day. And that is a great distinction, I think, that adds color and flavor to the world, aside from just keeping the player interested. It's interesting that you ask about that lieutenant, because another thing that you can do to make your world seem extremely real is to introduce these NPCs at some time and then reintroduce them later. When you guys were assaulting that cave where I was needing to coax you to go inside because you were scared of the dangers Mm -hmm. therein, not only did Otenamon, the Tiamat cleric, come out, but also wandering out of the jungle came Crixus, the orc <laughs> deserter, if you recall, from that Maelar's throat. Yeah. That was literally 120 games later that Crixus showed back up. He had turned his life to one of pacifism. He no longer carried weapons. He regretted his misdeeds, and he had taken up healing as a pastime. He was a he was a hippie, basically. <laughs> and so he came out and tended your wounds and he hung back and he helped you. I gave him the power to give you a re-roll whenever you had been affected by a particular spell that had some sort of ongoing effect. So if you'd been charmed or debuffed or whatever, he could help you get out of it. And then you guys were like, you are great. You're wonderful. You don't ask for loot. You can heal. <laughs> You've got all these wonderful uses. Please stay with us. And he said, no, yours is a path of violence. I must return to the jungle. And he wandered off again. It's a shame. I wound up liking him better than some of the members of my own force by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, you know, he was a repentant murderer. <laughs> you know, it was fun to bring him back. But it was it was also fun to see how many people remembered him from years gone by. The player who actually played him in that Mailer's Throat fight asked, sent me a message immediately saying, do I still get to play him? Excited at the opportunity to take up the mantle of running Crixus the orc again. And I did, I handed him over to him. While we're talking about that particular arc of the campaign where we were fighting in a marketplace and while we're talking about NPCs and different roles they can fill, I feel like we have to talk about the Jakuli Guild, this thieves guild that you created to operate beneath Port Nainzaru, whose goals temporarily aligned with our aims, especially a couple of those members of the guild. And of course, I'm biased because I got to pilot one of them for a time. But let's talk about the arc that is Hasin and Hasun. Yeah, so it's funny how, again, this, this can all be very organic as a DM. You don't have to plan this stuff out 20 games in advance. You just have to be nimble enough to allow it to happen I wanted you guys to be angry at the Zentarum. 
And to have you guys go after the Zentarum, I decided the interesting way to do that was to create a fledgling, more user-friendly Thieves Guild in Port 9 Zaru that were willing to help you if you were willing to hurt the Zentarum. So, very long story short, you guys were ushered into the sewers of Port 9 Zaru where you met the Jakuli Guild, Jakuli being a, a snake-like beast that lives in the jungle, straight out of D&D lore, and they offered to help you if you were going to hit the Zentarum. You guys' quick assessment said they weren't nearly as powerful as you, they weren't nearly as capable as you, and if you took them in there, they'd probably all get killed. But you very cleverly said, you know what we need? We're going to kill a lot of guys with a lot of nice stuff, and we don't have time to loot them, because if I'm not mistaken, the plan was to hit the Zentarum at a time when half their numbers, their most important senior members, were at a dinner party across town. You guys had done some research and found that out. Yeah. So you were going to go in while just the grunts were there. Right, and we thought this would be a great time to not only weaken their forces, but maybe to scour their headquarters for intel. And we weren't sure that we were going to be able to get everything that we needed and wanted to get out of that encounter on our own, before the bigwigs came back and ruined our day. Absolutely. I, another sneaky DM trick, insert a time limit. Makes everything more fun. <laughs> and be willing to enforce it is the other thing as a DM. Don't make it a hollow threat. But anyway, yes, there was a time limit because the bad guys were coming back. So you guys said, you know what? We don't have time to do. What? What's a fight in D&D lasts four minutes. Mm-hmm. We've got four minutes. Looting all of the stuff takes a half hour. We're not sure we have that. So you guys recruited about 10 of the Jakuli Guild members to come in behind you and loot bodies. They had bags. They were told, don't try to figure out what's valuable and what's not. Just take everything. Strip them naked if you can, but definitely empty their pockets, take their weapons, and so on. So that worked out really well. You guys went in. Of course, I had a lot of twists in there. You found that there were two factions at work, and there was an ancient shadow creature imprisoned in a wall, and of course I can't let it be straightforward, but that's all beside the point. The Jakuli killed came in and did the looting that they were supposed to do, but as we spoke about with the Maelar's throat thing, I asked you guys to run the guild members because I gave each of them a motivation while they were there. Maybe some of them were larcenist and going to steal some stuff. Some of them wanted to get into the fight. Some of them were absolutely not going to get into the fight. And there were two guys there, both neutral evil, both native Chultons, both big barbarian types named Hassin and Hassoon, who desperately wanted to be adventurers and desperately wanted to impress you guys. And so they kept a little closer to the front and kept getting a little more involved. Right. And because you have a penchant for giving these NPCs mechanics that express their goals. And Hasin and Hasun were brothers, and they fought best when they fought together, when they were both attacking the same target. And that gave them a little bit of a level of depth that the player playing Hasun and I found interesting and gave us a reason to cooperate and gave us a reason to roleplay when their turn and initiative came up beyond just running and looting a body. And it's very easy to implement. It sounds like work, but I swear it's not. I did not design them as fully fleshed out characters, just like I said before. I think I took a simple thug, or maybe even less than that, out of the monster manual, 
and I simply added one little note to it that said if they're attacking the same target, one of them gets sneak attack damage maybe, the other one gets a bonus to hit. Mm -hmm. I think I had a second thing in there too that if one of them went down, the other brother would try to rescue him. And then for the other brother, if his brother went down, he went berserk. And suddenly he became very powerful, but he was completely heedless to his own safety. And he was probably going to die once he, you know, calmed down from the berserk. Again, making it way more fun to play than just asking. Otherwise, it sounds like you're you're just asking the player to do your job for you. Hey, please run this NPC. Yeah, you're just palming them off. Right, right. The more interesting thing, though, about Hasin and Hasun is they were so good at... You guys had a party after you succeeded in wiping out the Zentarum and you looted their vault. You didn't kill everybody there, and you may have released a pretty powerful demon creature into the world, but that's, like again, you do. that's just my game. <laughs> that's just the kind of thing that happens in Mike's game. You were back partying at the Jakuli Guild's main hideout, and Hasin and Hasun kept coming up to you and saying, you really need us to hang out with you. We're going to go with you wherever you guys go. We're with you. And when you took off to that encounter where you ultimately met Otenamon, the Tiamat cleric, they were with you there watching your back and fighting alongside you. And for those interactions, between running them in that combat and Otenamon, the other player and I were no longer responsible for Hasin and Hasun. As soon as initiative ended... They went back into your control. That's an excellent point and one I should have already made. It is imperative that you not let your players continue to control these NPC characters outside of combat. This is combat entertainment. Combat is a great place to build personality. Don't think it's like a separate game. It's a great place to show off who your character is and what they're like, and it's a great place for you to learn who that NPC is. But once it comes to downtime, they're back in my control. And I think that when we role-played the characters in the way that you informed us through their mechanics and motivations that they should be played, you informed your future portrayal of those characters consistently with how we role-played them in that combat. It's kind of like we built these characters jointly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Again, I don't put much time into these characters up front. A couple of things are going to happen. Your players are going to latch on to them, and they're going to be interesting background, maybe comedy relief or whatever going forward. That's great. You had some guy in your Acquisitions Incorporated game that definitely fell into that category. He wasn't ever going to do anything for us, but he was hilarious. And we went to see him just because he was hilarious. (laughs) There's others that they'll just ignore, and that's fine too. And then occasionally, very rarely, you have a Hasin and a Hasun that get picked up. Well, I didn't treat any of those categories differently. I didn't really flesh out any of them. It's a waste of your time to do that because you don't know who the players are going to latch on to. You guys fleshed out Hasin and Hasun, and then I picked it up from there, and we grew it from there, as you said. But I interrupted you with that. I apologize. When their story took a turn by the time we reached Otenamon. Yeah, that's right. So hard to tell a five-year campaign in a one-hour podcast. The, the story would be just overwhelming, obviously, and I'm not even sure I could do it. But there was a meeting taking place where you guys needed a magic gigaw from a commander of the Flaming Fist who also needed something. She needed to get away. She had done some bad things that had made the 
Flaming Fist leadership, very angry, and they were going to come after her. She wanted to disappear. You guys owned a boat. She had the magic doolally that you needed. So you guys made a swap and said, you can have the boat and sail away and disappear forever. Just give us the thing. And the one thing she lacked were experienced sailors. And being from Port Nines Aru, it just turned out that we had fleshed out together that these guys knew how to sail. It wasn't something we thought of spur of the moment. It was on their sheet. I wouldn't have minded it being spur of the moment, but it couldn't have been more perfect that it already had been established that they knew how to sail a boat. They raised their hands and said, that sounds like adventure on the high seas, on the run with a flaming fist commander, let's go. And their arc started as them simple porter recruits and ended many, many games later with them sailing off into the sunset with a character I may introduce sometime in the future. From porter men to porter's men, lieutenant porter's men. Ah, clever. That's why this (laughs) podcast is such a success. (laughs) And getting to portray Haseen on occasion was a lot of fun. It's nice to have an arc for a character. I've stated this in previous episodes of the podcast and to anyone who will listen to me for longer than 30 minutes on the subject of being a player in D&D is that I dislike playing the same character week after week after week after week. And that's not to say I dislike playing a character with the same name. I just want them to change. I want them to grow. I want the adventure and the people around them to shape them. And more so than with some of the characters that I have played in campaigns in the past, Haseen grew alongside his brother and became a very different person, became a very capable person who he he almost used the party to gain some experience and go (laughs) off to have grander adventures elsewhere. In the event that this campaign continues, I have no doubt that at some point we will be hearing of some pirate crew where a captain whose description resembles that of Lieutenant Porter and her brother first mates are out there getting up to some high seas hijinks. And I'm sure that'll be the case. And at that time, as the DM, that's when you do invest a little bit of time in them. So when you see them again, I don't want them to be the same. If I reintroduce them in 20 games... They're going to be decked out. They're going to have new abilities. They're going to have new goals. They may be coming to ask you for a favor. That's a great story hook, and you'd be inclined to listen to them because you know them so well. And one of them is missing their leg from the knee down, and the other one has an eye patch and is missing their left middle finger. Of course. That's how you know they're pirates. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, this is why I wanted to have these discussions with you is because NPCs are such a powerful tool that I gotta say are pretty much consistently underutilized across the board as I am exposed to different dungeon masters and different games. And it's not to say that they aren't being utilized. It's just, it's very difficult to utilize them too much. That they are a great conduit for information for the party. They are the best way to introduce intrigue. They are a wonderful way to implement suspicion and subtlety and nuance to social interactions and can sometimes walk that delicate line between allies and enemies. And just like the characters, just like anyone in a developing world and a developing story can grow alongside the characters and change over the course of a story. All great points. 
Agreed. And using these NPCs is not work. It's not a daunting task. Do not be overwhelmed by it. Once you start using these muscles, you're going to get really used to it. It becomes very easy to do. It makes your game go smoother. It actually makes your job easier because by introducing NPCs, you give your players something to latch on to. The most successful thing that can be happening in your game is that you, the DM, are not talking. Mm. If the players are talking, it's a good game, and your NPCs will make them talk. And don't make it hard on yourself. I draw from pop culture, so think of your favorite movies, think of your favorite books. I love the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. I love the George R.R. Martin stuff. Most of the NPCs, unbeknownst to my players, that they encounter are some character from some book, and that's how I remember how to behave as them is because I know that character so well from literature. So don't be afraid to make it easy on yourself by stealing from a source that you know well. Yeah, tropes and stereotypes are tropes and stereotypes for a reason. There are books and YouTube channels, some of which I watch ardently, that celebrate the stereotypes, show how they are used and sometimes overused and sometimes why they are a temptation. It's because they are effective. The rags to riches story, the spurned lover, the lancer archetype, the second banana, the list goes on and on. I agree. And those tropey over-the-top personalities make your NPCs memorable. You'll find that the subtle ones are best used on those NPCs those joiners that I talked about before. If you're going to give somebody a subtle, slow-cooked depth of personality, make that the person that they have to hang out with for a while. For the background fillers and the recruits and the bystanders, make them over the top. Make them, uh, make them a little bit of a cartoon, and your players will gravitate towards them. Mm. Well, I'm... Delighted that we got the chance to have this conversation. Again, we've been talking up having you on the podcast. It's something that Stephen and I have really been looking forward to. And it's always just fun to be able to sit down and talk to you about stuff that we're passionate about. I really am grateful that you have made the time to come and chat about this stuff with me. Yeah, this was great. It feels like just you and I sitting down having a conversation like we do all the time anyway, except that I've got on headphones and I'm told you're recording this. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, I think that will about do it for this conversation. We'd love to have you back on and talk about other things. I just knew that I couldn't possibly say everything that I wanted to about DMPCs and how to more effectively utilize NPCs in your games without getting you involved and leaning on your wisdom in this particular realm. If you have enjoyed this podcast and us talking about things and instructing you and giving insights and advice into the game of Dungeons & Dragons. We have several more episodes for you to go back and listen to in our back catalog, and another episode will come out for you every other week on Saturdays on your platform of choice. We also have a YouTube channel and a Discord where I talk about more topics and where we discuss them with you. We even get ideas for future episodes from you guys, oftentimes. Links to both of those are in the description of this episode, and can't wait to have you back in a couple of weeks for another episode of Bardic Twinspiration. See you then. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. 
If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. I'm going to wait till the church bells stop over here. My dog was having a lucid dream a minute ago. I had to throw something at her. So she was over here barking and her, her little paws were walking. She was chasing a bunny or something. See, this is good for my bloopers. Just giving little insights into the recording process. There's church bells and dreaming dogs. Yes, she's laying at the foot of the desk here chasing a bunny. Uh, it's not even the one that we occasionally go to. It's the, cl- the half a block closer one. Because this is Alabama, and people will not go to the same church, but they will go to the one literally across the street over a difference in fried chicken seasonings. I don't get it. Yeah, whenever we come to visit you guys, Henry counts churches on the way there. <laughs> it's worse when you get out in the country, and there's just yeah. less between them. <laughs> yeah.